Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Aris Benedict. When Stephen Mazur, assistant editor at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, interviews writers, he always asks them this question, why do you write? One of the most common answers is, because I couldn't find the stories I wanted to read. In this episode, we are joined by filmmaker Shannon Strucci and critic Leslie Lee of Struggle Session, a podcast about American pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, this is really neat. I mean, Shannon, you're the you are the reason that everybody talks about parasocial relationships now. Yes, <laughs> you, and, you and coronavirus, the two <laughs> driving forces behind that particular discourse. Yeah, that's pretty wild. That's pretty neat. That's got to feel kind of weird to be like, oh, God, everyone's talking about this because of me. I had I was at a convention and someone asked me what I, someone else who was like paneling asked me what I did. And I kind of described it. He's like, wait, are you the reason we all use the word parasocial now? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And he was like, I want to shake your hand. It was it was cool, but it was weird. It's like, yeah, I'm still broke. And I'm still a yeah. relatively obscure video essayist. But yeah, everyone knows this word now. Uh, but it is cool. I feel like it's at least people are aware of it, even if they just get angry about it or ignore it. I did bring about some kind of awareness of this very unhealthy relationship. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have like a word to know to call it because it's like you can it's a phenomenon. You kind of sense it's happening and it's horrifying. But it, until you have a word for it, it's hard to really crystallize just exactly what's wrong. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, this sort of ties into it. Um, the, for, for this episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about why it's so important to tell your own story instead of waiting for someone else to tell it for you. And um, I, I think a, a way, really good way to talk about that, to, to get into it, is to just talk a little bit about how our media structure sort of breeds a kind of cultural passivity, right? There's like a sort of top-down culture, which flies in the face of a long tradition of folk culture and how kind of weird and fucked up that is. <laughs> you mean how everyone has to have a take about the same exact things all the time and it's the same two or yeah. three things instead of yeah. what we thought we, what we thought initially, you know, the internet was going to bring us was everybody was going to be their own kind of weirdo and they'd find their other weirdos who were into the same things. They are now a bunch of weirdos now have to pretend to be into the most popular things in the world being, you know, either something from Disney or the other thing from Disney. Right, <laughs> right. And it's so it's so depressing. I mean, there's so much potential to the internet, like you said, but that's not how it's going. It's sort of, well, the big media corporation sort of decides, here's what we're talking about this week. And maybe it's, maybe we're talking about it in a positive way, maybe in a negative way, but we're all just talking about the, the whatever it is, whether it's like, okay, this is the, you know, the, the lady Ghostbusters or the live action Lion King or whatever. And for me, I, I find that especially upsetting because I'm a sci-fi fantasy writer, and that's this genre that's supposed to be all about the broadening of, of possibilities and imagination, but so much of sci-fi fantasy is still focused on these, like, four or five franchises, all of which are, like, 20 years old, at least. Or older, yes, I say. Yeah. Much older than I am, and I don't care about most of them, and it's exhausting. Yeah, oh, very old and also completely no longer made by the original creators, the person or the team that actually created the original thing that people love. Now they've been sold, you know, sometimes two or three times over and handed to J.J. Abrams or some other mercenary <laughs> uh, to kind of make something kind of in the shape of what people used to love and then people start thinking that that is actually the thing when it's not and never was yeah and and it's kind of startling i think of how unnatural that is i mean culturally there have been hierarchies uh, reinforced by these sort of power hierarchies and wealth hierarchies but just how concentrated it is that that does that seems kind of new to me like i don't i don't think that it was even possible to do until recently and it's kind of horrifying 
<laughs> yeah, there was a time where you know it was allowed to like not like or care about Star Wars, and I say this as someone right. who always liked and cared about Star Wars. That's actually the thing that like freaks me out the most because I am mm. a sort of person who even if you know we didn't have this you know top down media c- conglomerate forcing all this on us would still mm. pros- possibly be interested in Star Wars in some capacity right but right. Th- it freaks me out to see people who obviously don't give a shit about it still feeling mm. like they have to talk about it and have to you know have opinions on it and have to watch it and go to watch it I I, it, I think it maybe happens a little bit worse with the Marvel films because you have people because there's so many of them and if you just like if you like going to the movies you have to go see like a marvel or disney movie because that's the only thing playing some weeks so if you're someone who just likes going to see movies like you are all of a sudden now been brought into like the marvel universe even though even if it's something you never really were interested or care about but if you just like seeing like hollywood film in the theater you have to watch marvel movies and you have to know who squirrel girl is and uh, <laughs> you know right and i mean i'm lucky in that i have the i have a local theater that shows like international and you know anything by a24 and all that great weird shit but like a lot of people just don't have that you got the multiplex and literally half the screens are for the latest avengers movie and that's awful that's There's awful also- there's so much pressure if you're like at all a public figure online to have a take mm-hmm. on any of these films. Like I care right. a lot more about talking about weird independent art just because I'm more interested in it. And people will get like mad at me. They'll be like, what did you think about this thing? Like Star Wars or whatever. I'm like, I don't care. They're like, you don't care. It's like yeah. you can be indifferent. <laughs> yeah. It's possible. It's like yeah. it's, you're not allowed. It's, it's the I- extremes are all that are allowed online. And yeah. it's exhausting. And I just get more stubborn about it. It's like unless I have something I think is really important to say, I will never make a, a video about a Marvel movie right. or about Star Wars. The fan bases for both of them are exhausting. And there's this that weird also social pressure to be like like you mentioned Lady Ghostbusters. It's I I did I did do a video about that because it drove me nuts that Sony wouldn't let Kate McKinnon's character be gay. Yeah, that's like sucks. blocked it. But then everyone was like, oh, it's a go buy multiple tickets to it. It's a feminist masterpiece. Yeah. And I'm like, I hate you. I hate this. <laughs> and then I got called an anti SJW for making that. It was crazy. It was uh. so weird. It's like people who are just it's like corporate brainwashing. Right. And limiting their imaginations are them thinking buying a ticket to a Sony movie is like Praxis. Yeah. Stupid. And that that actually segs into uh, a, a point that I wanted to bring up, which was re- representation issues, right? Like, there is this big, weird, everyone has to have a take about Lady Ghostbusters. Everyone has to have a take about, you know, the Star Wars lady girl. Because there's a big concern about representation in media, right? Media representation absolutely does affect the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves. But that being said, I feel like a lot of the discourse is around, let's put a queer character in this generic story template. And that's a really shallow kind of representation that doesn't really get at anything really important or significant. And beyond this surface level of representation, I think the thing that's missing from the discourse about, say, the Lady Ghostbusters or the discourse about the gay Star Wars is there are different ways of telling stories. Yeah, like, so I I had a big problem with the discourse around uh, Black Panther when it came out. Um, my first mm. problem with it was that in order to promote Black Panther as, you know, this unique experience, people basically erased the entire history of, like, black cinema up to that point. There were, you know, white mm-hmm. film reviewers. Um, I'm not going to name, I, I'll say it, you know, on Birth Movies, uh, Disney, that website, she, one of the reviewers on there basically said, like, this is the most important film that it has ever happened, you know, for black people. And, like, I Whoa. thought that was extremely Ooh, ridiculous. Wow. And, offensive. And, the, and, of course, it was a white person. It was a white person saying this. And they, like, defended oh And, like, God. no, it's the most important to you because you're very enamored with the current output from Disney Marvel. But, like, there's been other huge black movies before 
other ones that I'm yeah. sure will go down as more important than Black Panther. And there's even been more at other and better Black superhero films that have happened that mm. I thought were a lot better uh, than Black Panther. So first, you know, with that representation, and we saw the same thing happen with Wonder Woman. We saw it with Captain Marvel. Right. They were promoted as like the first female superhero films when there have been tons. Right. Of, there's six Resident Evil movies. There's five underworld <laughs> movies i mean maybe you say those aren't superheroes but there were supergirl there was catwoman that you know it right. these things have existed and i don't think it really benefits us or mm. marginalized people to pretend like our history doesn't exist until disney decides to notice us and the, the other thing is like even if it's just just representation as you said if it's just a black super cop or a trans super cop like what does that really mean for us there's right. still like if you aren't really analyzing or criticizing you know the underlaying patriarchal misogynistic transphobic homophobic imperialistic mil milieu that super the superhero is born from like what does right. it mean to make that superhero black or queer or a woman it, it actually doesn't mean all that much and i think that i i'm not saying that every you know black superhero movie or every superhero movie featuring a marginalized person has to be a deconstruction or dismantling of right. sexism racism and homophobia but you can't pretend that it is when it isn't is that is you yeah. can't pretend that representation and alone is a deconstruction or a challenge to these you know underlying structures absolutely like when you're when you're forming a sentence it's not just the words that give you the meaning it's the syntax and what a lot of these sort of Marvel diversity movies do is they're swapping in slightly different words, but it's the same syntax, it's the same structure, it's the same generic hero's journey template. I mean, Marvel movies have a very, very strict formula that they follow. And in general, movies, a lot of movies follow the what's called like the save the cat formula. And so many in, in sci-fi and fantasy adventure, so many movies or so many stories follow this um, Joseph Campbell, hero with a thousand faces structure very, 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 very strictly. So it's all kind of the same syntax. Like, yeah, you have a female character, but I feel like there's a difference between a generic hero's journey story with a woman-shaped person at the head of it versus a feminine story, a, a story by a woman about womanhood. Like stories, I find that stories written by women kind of feel different than stories written by men. There's this greater interiority and it's so rich and so interesting to me. And that's so much deeper and more wonderful than like, let's have Joss Whedon write a movie about the kind of girl he wants to bang. You know? <laughs> Famous woman respecter Joss Whedon. Exactly. We all know and love. <laughs> exactly. And, and so many of these like amazing, you know, oh, there's a woman in it. Movies are, I mean, are, are like produced by like some scumbag like fucking Max Landis or Steve Mnuchin. Yeah, 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 he was one of the producers of Wonder Woman, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> Fuck. Ugh. Weren't, like, the Koch brothers involved or something, too, I think? <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. There's a lot of, like, very questionable funding behind a lot of these. Ugh. Not to mention that, like, so many of them are just blatantly bankrolled or pushed by the military-industrial complex. Yes, yes. The Koch brothers <laughs> did invest in Wonder Woman. Um, I just oh. looked it up. And, of course, like, all almost all these films, not just superhero I think superhero movies, since they have so many yeah. of those big battles, are probably worse offenders than movies in general. But mm. movies in general have been completely and early infiltrated by the military industrial complex that spreads uh, mass death across uh, the globe, mostly yeah. to poor black and brown uh, people. Um, and we tend yeah. to for, you know, ignore or forget get that somehow that I, I mean you know Wonder Woman is a great example but maybe even Captain Marvel is a better example mm -hmm. because they did like 
you know, the star of it uh, was Brie Larson was doing advertisements for the Air Force <laughs> while promoting Ooh. the film. And, and, and it's so amazing because like Marvel had in particular gotten in trouble for wanting to do like a panel with Boeing at like a convention and a bunch of people got mad about wow. it and they canceled the panel and it was a specifically like i think it i got i want to say it was like a girl power with boeing or something like that panel where they actually (laughs) were trying to do like a the wokeness with boeing specifically and so for them to you know see that happen and then still with captain marvel they're big they're finally decided to stop being sexist and let a a woman star uh in the film again this no one else was forcing Mm -hmm. disney to not put out a, a film uh, with a female lead. That was Disney's decision to stop being sexist, so they shouldn't get credit for that. Any, anyway, yeah. even when they did that, they still tied it to that military-industrial complex, explicitly you know, making an advertisement uh, basically for the Air Force and just, you know, to see that swept under mm-hmm. the rug and just say that, oh, this, you know, is about res- representation, so we have to support this, is, you know, completely and utterly like tone deaf and shallow right right i mean it's just it's pasting a woman logo on this very patriarchal very like white sort of propaganda and the idea of having that fed to you and be like doesn't that satisfy you don't you feel so great as a woman for seeing that i'm like no do you know what the u.s military fucking does to women it's not great (laughs) It's not good. It's not a good place for women. It's not a good, you know, do you know what happens to women in countries occupied by foreign armies? It's it's not good. I, like, it looked, I mean, it really creeped me out. I didn't want to say this because, you know, I didn't want to uh, really upset people. I'm like, do we, do people, are people familiar with, like, how often women in the military, like Carol Danvers, have how often they face sexual assault while on oh, duty? God. They're more likely to be... Uh, uh, raped by one of their colleagues than they are to be killed in combat and it's like right and you're sitting there telling women to join the military like their uh, hero captain marvel and it's just completely disgusting and irresponsible and cynical yeah yeah and of course that's not a thing she's ever going to have to face i don't think because she's a superwoman and that's kind of this issue like like i understand the value of wanting some kind of you know, escapism that has its place. But as a woman, I don't, I don't feel like I identify with fucking Wonder Woman. Like, I don't identify with this like perfect, super tall person who's never afraid of anything like that. You're a woman who's never scared of anything. What the fuck are you? I don't know you. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And because what we try to do on Struggle Session, even though we are fans of, you know, superheroes and the superhero myth, and we get some enjoyment from that, we try to put it in in the context for like, first of all, it's not for everyone. Like everybody doesn't have the superhero, the idea, very idea that we need, you know, black superheroes or marginalized superheroes kind of just skips over the critiques of the superhero itself that, you know, someone like Alan Moore made all the way back in the 80s and everyone thought oh, yeah. was a great takedown. It's like, hey, actually, you know, we shouldn't really want a bunch of, you know, marginalized people running around as superheroes because that's just asking for a bu- bunch of uh, marginalized people to run around as unaccountable fascist super police. <laughs> I mean, it's basically like Paul Verhoeven's uh, adaptation of Starship Troopers and that like, yeah, it's the si- society that is like racially integrated and, you know, there's gender equality, but it's still horrifically fascist. It's just like nicer fascism, yeah. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a type of inclusive, like they've just changed what their class structure, how they you know, stratify across classes. Now it's like whether right. you served in the military, then you get to be fully uh, citizen, or which is to say, fully human. Right, right. In that in that world, but men and women shower together in that future, so there yeah. is some you know, some progress. Yeah, I mean, there's that. There's the co-ed shower in which the one woman says, "I joined the military so I could get my breeding license because yeah. I'd like to have children." You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, God, I could talk about that movie on and on. But something I really would like to focus on, too, is just how, aside from surface level, like, let's stick a woman in it, 
the difference between sort of a masculine or a feminine narrative or the difference between a a very like white Western narrative versus like a, I don't know, like a a movie made through a black perspective. It's not going to look like the MCU. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I mean, it's hard to say that even a movie made just from a human perspective would necessarily look like the MCU. (laughs) I was about to say, like, who actually... Like that. Oh, yes, this is authentic to my experience while they're watching like <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, which I like Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that's one right. of the better uh, Marvel films. But I think it's just this compl- yeah. this like it's such a rigid, contrived, constructed structure. Right. And then it's passed off as like brave when they palette swap a woman or a black person in it. As a talking raccoon, I feel very seen (laughs) by that movie. (laughs) It's like like we were talking about earlier, too. It's like, oh, my God, they were so brave when they decided to stop being sexist. And they were the only ones stopping themselves. It's like, you don't deserve praise for that. When their accounting department crunched the numbers and realized, like, wait, women buy movie tickets sometimes. The second that graph changed. Okay, okay, get, get it ready, get it ready, you know. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how sort of different types of cultures create these different kinds of narratives. I'd love to take a moment to talk a little bit about, say, sort of the J-horror boom in the USA in like the late 90s, early 2000s, and sort of just as a set example of why it's so much more worthwhile, like compare, I don't know, taking a typical American horror movie from that era and sticking an Asian character in it versus something made from Japan. And how different a perspective on horror, on fear, on the supernatural, just how how that comes out and how that manifests differently and how it's so so much more exciting, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and that's not even to, because the first thing uh, when you said, you know, sticking a, you know, Japanese uh, person in a... Um, in a traditional um, traditional American, you know, schlocky horror film. Well, not schlocky, right. but, you know, studio yeah. horror film of the time. What it made me think of is when we st- stuck a studio horror star into a Japanese film. And it ended up right. being one of my favorite films. And, of course, I'm talking about the American adaptation of The Grudge, which was directed by the creator and director of the original uh, Japanese Grudge films, uh, Takeshi uh, Shimizu. And that's right. what, that maintained his vision of horror, and it's a particular Japanese vision of horror. It still starred, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar from Buffy mm-hmm. the Vampire Slayer, and what was she in? She was in Scream Two, and I think she was in the. Right. Uh, uh, oh, I, I know what you did last summer. You know, right, same star, yeah. but that film is so much more interesting uh, to me than just having representation of a Japanese person in a mostly American production. Right. I mean, just because, like, as a Japanese filmmaker, they're going to have, he's going to have a different perspective on the world. It's not going to be surface level. It's just a different way of seeing. And I think that's something that's missing from the sort of discourse. Yeah. A lot. Like, there's a difference between a movie with a woman in it versus a movie made by say, a female auteur like Anna Biller, where everything is so personal and so much about the female experience. And and she looks at the things uh, the way a woman would, which is very different than the way, say, fucking Joss Whedon would look. And there's there's also a difference between a female director who's empowered to tell the story uh, that she wants yeah. versus someone who is hired. Uh, my co uh, our co-host Jack Allison likes to say, you know, with Marvel and Disney, a lot of times they're mm-hmm. just casting someone to play the director when you know all the <laughs> action scenes are directed by someone else. The script they have nothing, uh, very little to do with in the end, and it's just they're there to play the part of the director instead of you know presenting anything like an authentic vision they basically you know kind of take the movie away from them and that that can happen you know outside of marvel and dc obviously we've heard and it happens to white directors too that's just the nature of uh, hollywood but i don't want you know i don't get excited when they say oh this you know marginalized person is going to direct this film because it makes me think like mm-hmm. is that person just taking a job so that they have money to make the film that they want and i think yeah. eventually 90 percent of the time that's usually the case yeah yeah i mean it's like here 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 it is color within the lines like you get a coloring book mm-hmm. to play with instead of really being able to paint your own picture and it's kind of bleak <laughs> uh, i think too i think i'm a little bit less of an essentialist about mm-hmm. like 
female-made films are like this and male-made films are like this. But, and, like, also, uh, I've been working on a video about the whole the Marvel New Warriors thing with, Mm. like, the snowflake and safe space and how it was just, like, a, a horrible mess. And it's, like... At least one queer person did work on that. Yeah. One of the two yeah. designers is very openly queer. It's like just because someone is in a marginalized group doesn't mean right. they're the best representative or that right. they're going to do the best job or that it's going to be 100% reflective of their identity. But like you said, like the entire, like especially because there were isolations for so, so long, the entire way that Japanese culture functions and the way that they're so much less individualist than Americans and their whole film history is so different. Like, a lot of that is going to play into a Japanese film. And like you said earlier, the entire syntax of the film, the, the whole way that it's shot and the whole way that all the characters are treated uh, can be completely different from American films. Or it could be a Japanese director that's just influenced by, like, American cultural imperialism and right. makes a much more, like, American-style movie. Right, right, right. For me, just that, that fact of you bring your own perspective to it is part of why I find it so important to sort of tell your own stories mm-hmm. instead of waiting for this giant corporate monoculture to tell it for you. Like, oh, absolutely. I see, like over and over again, I see so many posts that are like, oh, I wish Disney would make a princess who's fat, or I wish Disney would, you know, make a movie about blah, 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 or I wish someone would, I wish someone would write a story about a protagonist that's like me. And I'm always thinking like, well, why don't you try to write it? Maybe you you could be the one to write that, you know? Like, I started writing because I couldn't find the stories that I desperately wanted to read, and I realized, well, I have to make them, and I'm wondering what stops other people from feeling, from, from doing that? Like, why do so many people feel like I have to wait for Disney to tell my story instead of saying, fuck this, I'm going to get a pen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to draft this up, I'm going to do this. Well, so it, I mean, I, I think a lot of people express that sentiment, but they might mean different uh, things, you know. If so, I think someone, the person who you know wants the fat Disney princess, like, <laughs> like they could be, it could be coming from different perspectives, you know. Do they just want more representation because they know Disney is going to be hegemonic regardless, and if it's, they're going to be hegemonic, they might as well have you know fat princesses so little girls can see you know different body types when they're watching those movies there might be uh some who you know maybe are who like are really just into disney and want to see you know them set themselves in this disney Mm -hmm. film in this disney superhero and they deeply care about disney as you know a brand and into actually love it and maybe they don't want to get away from that. Maybe they just want Disney to be more personally accommodating to them. And I think that's a lot of people. Like, if I was said, you know, if I, I guess, you know, let's take it from away from identity. If I say, oh, I wish there was a Star Wars book where Luke Skywalker got in a fight with a ghost of Mace Windu or whatever the fuck, that would probably mm. that would just be like a fan thing, right? I don't really care right. if it happens or not. You know, it's not like a really important thing to me. I just think it would be a good idea. Yeah. But then there is the other aspect of people who who have the people you I think you're talking about that, you know, have this creative vision and mindset and energy that they want to that they put out in, you know, these fan thoughts and fan fiction and fan cast. But they're not really spreading their wings because they've been convinced somehow that the only things that are authentic and matter or if they come from the top down uh, corporation it's like a validation you know it's not yeah. real unless disney does it and i i think it's very frustrating that a lot of these people would never think to google fat superhero or fat princess and because there's got to be a ton of there's got to like, be someone writing that and, are even like fan fiction versions of characters or like fan art of characters from other shows or like, or like cartoon. I like, I, I haven't watched Steven Universe, but I know there are some bigger characters in that and different body types right. in that. And that's really important to people. It's like, it's the extra effort people don't want to put in. And also some people just don't like, if someone's working a really difficult job or if they have kids or if they have like mental health issues or other things, like I don't expect them to be able to necessarily create on that level but they could mm-hmm. at least try to find other creators yeah. who are already doing it and support yeah. them like people who like are, are so upset that there aren't trans or, or female or queer characters and stuff it's like there are so many creatives online specifically in those groups that are very very easy to find um, yeah 
and support. Yishan, you saying that reminds me of all the wars and battles I had on online message boards about professional wrestling over the years. Uh, Yeah, so professional wrestling (laughs) fandom, big online, they're always fighting. And the thing that they always talked about and have talked about for the past 15 years is how much WWE, which is the number one wrestling company in the world right now, sucks. They hate it, Mm. but they keep watching it every goddamn week. And I've been trying to tell people, you know, for probably possibly two decades now, there are other companies you can watch. There's other wrestling companies that are give that can give you what you want. And there's some people who can hear that message and listen to it and you know try out new stuff. But there's like this percentage of people who just like refuse to really like take that leap to click that link to look at something else as being as valid as wwe even if it is on whatever level they're judging wrestling by vastly vastly superior uh to watch than wwe for some reason they are stuck in the mindset that w if it's not wwe it's not worth their time and i'm wondering like what gets people stuck into this mindset I, it, it drives me kind of nuts, too, because I see it with, I don't know, even friends of mine in real life. They'll like complain that, I don't know, movies are stale or something, or, oh, I want to see something more feminist. And I'll be like, oh, well, have you seen this movie? It's like, you know, stars a woman, it's about a woman, it's by this female auteur, it's really, really interesting. Or have you seen that? Or have you read this book? And they're like, eh, I don't want to, it's hard. I'm like, but why? <laughs> it's like, you know, when we're young, we have it's like we have some kind of like slurry of entertainment tube put in our mouths when we're young and that's like the disney tube and you know you go like the slurry is really boring it's really bland and it's like well i made pad thai i made this great pad thai do you want some pad thai like no i don't want to chew that's hard like fuck. <laughs> come on this is brainwashing i'm, ma- I'm making these the, someone is making either if you can't make the story chances are there's someone like you trying to make that story yeah and and god they would just love the support they would just some Mm -hmm. person with like 400 followers on twitter you know just putting up stories going like i i would love someone to read this i am making my fat princess stories i wish someone would read my fat princess stories then they see other people complaining that disney doesn't have a fat princess and it's like it's exhausting (laughs) i got one right here I, i got a fat princess look at it like no like, come on. People are just lazy and they've mm-hmm. been culturally brainwashed into thinking they have to like seek validation from establishment companies like Disney. And it's just like, I can't imagine how exhausting that is to just constantly be disappointed by any right. like crappy representation Disney has. Um, I think children's cartoons are getting better about it, but every time it's like, oh, there's like a gay character in this Disney or Pixar movie, they get one like one scene and they're a cop. Yeah, <laughs> or they're like fawning over Gaston. It's like, ugh, just I would rather have nothing, personally. <laughs> <laughs> the Cyclops lesbian cop. That's like, that's okay, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Your dog agrees. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm Dog's like down him. with cops. I hear that. He's so he's so angry about <laughs> cops. He heard me talk about him and he got mad. Sorry, but if he keeps barking, I'll go put him up. That's okay. It's charming. Our our listeners have said that they actually like it when my cats scream in the background. So, like. (laughs) Well, he's a giant labradoodle and he's very loud. He's like 80 pounds and he's very loud and angry. Nice. That's good. Yeah, but let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about supporting small art. Shannon, you did a whole video on on why you're so why you're really big on supporting independent creators, and I think it would be uh, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, a lot of it just comes from me trying to like make it doing YouTube. I've I've been doing YouTube videos for five years, and it was like years and years into it before I ever made more than like a couple hundred dollars a video, uh, and it was just like excruciating trying to build up a following. And I do a lot of conventions and I have ended up being friends with a lot of other like independent filmmakers and comic artists and other people who do podcasts. And I'm also a really big fan of horror art. Uh, and especially mm-hmm. if you if you follow uh, Trevor Henderson on Twitter at Slimy Swamp Ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He retweets a ton of like really, really amazing horror artists. And it legit, like, it legitimately upsets me because a lot of those people do, like, I, I'm an artist. I like drawing. I could never draw as well as a lot of these yeah. people. And they'll have, like, 100 followers. 
yeah. they're completely like um like they never get as much attention as they deserve they never get as much support as they deserve and i just wish like my whole what i tried to emphasize in that video is like it's important to go outside of your comfort zone and actually go looking for independent art because it will serve whatever you're interested in way mm. better than any like watered down to be palatable corporate rep- representation or corporate art like ever will and it's like a disney movie or a marvel movie can can be really good as far as spectacle mm-hmm. and just like seeing something that was very expensively made but outside of that, I think it's really important, especially if you care about seeing like black art or trans art or art from disabled people. Uh, and another mm. note real fast is like Ebert said that film is a machine that generates empathy. Mm. And I think by consuming art legitimately made by marginalized people, uh, it's not the same as actually knowing a person in that community or talking to them, but you can learn more about those experiences. And I think it's kind of if you care about not being ignorant it's important to to consume art from other communities as well. And people oh, just yeah. need to do it. People need to stop spending $15 on a movie ticket for a movie that's not going to serve them. That money could support so much proportionally, like, online. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a big issue, this material issue. Like, the idea mm-hmm. that buying, buying a movie ticket for, like, a big-budget movie is somehow supporting marginalized people or women. It's like, what do you think the CEO is? Yeah. <laughs> like, the CEO's probably like a cis hat white person white guy probably a monster probably a monster probably another fucking weinstein type motherfucker Mm. like just the shit that goes on in that industry how badly it treats marginalized people is appalling and you know they got enough money they got they got a zillion dollars disney doesn't need your your help yeah like sony doesn't need anybody's help there's like a trans artist making a webcomic somewhere who that 15 dollars would pay for part of their hormones this month right yeah that's like that's a much you can make a much bigger difference especially like i have enough of a platform on twitter where if i talk about some obscure piece of art at least a couple of people will check it out probably and that's really rewarding for me and i think other people who have platforms instead of just making videos about star wars which get more views i think it's a responsibility i would say to talk about weird art i don't think other people always view it that way but (laughs) i do oh yeah yeah and and it's weird because that is such a such a driver and and a part of me understands that if i did this podcast about like really popular but let's talk more about harry potter (laughs) you know it gets so many listens i'd get so many clicks but i i feel like it's kind of immoral to do that i'm like because i you know i'm a writer and i i know like a fledgling writer and i i'm seeing just how hard it is to get your work seen even if you're like getting published in in magazines it's really hard to kind of get your name there and to be seen and i and i know so many like kind of smaller short fiction writers who I think are just wonderful and it's so hard for them to find an audience and it's like I want to put people toward them I want to be like look at this guy's stuff it's fucking awesome don't don't fucking talk about Hermione Granger anymore talk about this guy he's really cool and you know he's got a Patreon and if instead of buying that Harry Potter action figure you buy you donate to his Patreon he can buy more ramen this month <laughs> he can eat more than once this month he's going to notice that dollar mhm <laughs> and it's it, and it's maddening there's no sense of just this material issue of supporting a small time creator versus a, a very evil mega corporation that's going to use your money to like lobby the federal government to make IP laws even more draconian. <laughs> and there's an, there's there's which speaking of which there is one issue that a big part of why I'm really big on the idea of like supporting marginalized creators and telling your own story instead of waiting for the mega corporation to do it is because of uh, this Disney movie Coco. Mm. I don't know if you heard about the controversy behind it. It's this, it's a movie that's about like this Mexican family. Um, But during the marketing campaign, uh, the Disney Corporation actually tried to trademark the phrase Dia de los Muertos. Like they tried to legally trademark (laughs) the phrase Dia de los Muertos and the imagery. And like, it's so hard. I can't overstate how obscene that is. That's so funny. That's so funny. (laughs) How fucking disgusting that is and offensive to me. Like, really directly trying to steal Mexican culture in the name of, like, look, we made this inclusive movie. Like, look, you tried to steal (laughs) 
Mexico's culture, this really important festival. What the fuck? Yeah, and uh, we talk about on, on Struggle Session oftentimes, people just tend to forget that all the Disney movies that they loved in their childhood that built them up to this media conglomerate empire are just things that other people had already written and been telling to each other for <laughs> years, centuries and they just basically co-opted them and now Cinderella instead of being this you know folktale story that people are sharing that's you know um, was a public domain now Cinderella right. is that blue dress and that blonde hair and etc etc with, with all their stories they built it up off of stealing culture from other people we just uh, weren't noticing it in real time but I guess they <laughs> are still trying to do it right and it's like they've taken this folk tale, this this you know folklore, which can change and evolve depending on who's telling it, who you're telling it to, and it's this such a cooperative act of storytelling. I mean, a mom telling stories to her kids to get them to go to sleep is this beautiful cooperative act of of community and love. And to take that and to also say like this is ours now, you can't have it because you know once Disney owns a thing, like it owns it forever. Steamboat Willie should have been in the public domain like 50 years ago, but they've changed the laws so that like it's never going to be able to be in anyone else's hands and evolve. And even though the people who created it are long dead, like that's that's horrifying. It's also like they when they take these stories, they're always made much more palatable. And yeah. toned, like the original Little Mermaid or the, the oh, original yeah. Cinderella. I haven't seen Coco, but I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, took they changed a lot of Mexican folklore or, or toned it down or made it more palatable to a like white American audience. Because it's like, right. yeah, re- whenever I first read or was exposed to the original Cinderella story, or the original Little Mermaid story, it was like, ooh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's bleak and it's but but I mean also like this is something that that gets on my nerves a little bit too. The changing of the ending of The Little Mermaid like completely undercuts the point of it, which mm-hmm. is like, oh, hey, if you change, completely change who you are to make someone fall in love with you, it's not going to work and you're going to suffer terribly. Like, that's a really, actually really fucking good lesson to teach children versus if you completely change who you are to get people to love you, that's a good idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Change everything for a man. It'll work great. Do it. Yeah. Give up your voice for a man. Very chill, very cool. Oh. oh, yeah, and of course, Pocahontas was completely historically accurate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, I didn't even think about that. No issues oh. there. Yeah, it's just, it's not even that they're, like, telling an authentic version of these stories. It's a very toned-down, yeah. palatable version, which makes it even worse. Yeah, like, that shit actually happened. You can't even be like, we're using creative license. Like, that actually was a real thing, and you just did something really weird with it. I don't yeah. That's I, mm. and then got praised for the diversity of it. I know, mm-hmm. which they did with Coco too, right? From what I understand, like every time they oh, steal, yeah. you know, a story from uh, a marginalized person, they get credit for it, and it gets to show that now when you go to the Disney store, the lineup of princesses, you know, stops being entirely white at a certain point, and we're supposed to celebrate that. Here's something you can buy. Hooray! (laughs) Here's more merchandise to sell. We have found another demographic that we can profit off of. Hooray for us. Don't you feel good? Don't you feel good being a targeted demographic that people want to make money off of? God, it just makes me feel so good about myself. (laughs) That makes us brave. (laughs) We're expanding our marketing because there won't be backlash now because our culture is marginally less racist and less upset about uh, whatever doll. I, I think what a lot of this comes down to, and, and something we've mentioned a little bit, is um, I think something that's very valuable in all this to maybe rethink the idea of what it means to be a part of culture. Like, culture as it is, it's very passive. It's very, the company makes this and I consume it. And maybe I don't like it and I complain about it. You know, I complain to the manager. I complain on a, an internet review. I leave a one-star Amazon review or or maybe I don't, or maybe I like it and I and I buy the toys, but that is how we engage with culture. We sort of consume it and react, and that's it. And that's such a bleak way <laughs> of looking at culture, <laughs> and it's not natural. This is not natural 
Through history, people have always told each other stories. Always. The idea of there just being one storyteller flies in the face of thousands and thousands of years of human tradition. And I, I think we as a culture somehow need to get away from that. So what I'd like to consider is like, what are some ways to do that? Because it's a hard habit. It's a hard habit to get away from, you know? <laughs> and unfortunately, I think a lot of that instinct and that impulse has been sort of co-opted by this sort of fandom industrial complex where it's like, <laughs> oh, you want to tell your own story? Okay, we'll go on this website and tell a Spider-Man story. It's like, you know, there's stories without Spider-Men in them. <laughs> there are other kinds of stories. You don't have to just smash action figures together. You could craft your own characters mm -hmm. and tell them. And maybe not many people will read them, but like it feels really good to have something that you made that's that's distinctly you. And it can be a lot more meaningful to a smaller number of like people who are engaging with it. You might yeah. use, it might not have mass appeal, but I mean, any kind of art that I've really loved over the years and that has influenced me, it's been pretty weird. Not it's not necessarily like queer or representative right. of my own experience directly, but right. um, like when I was like a teenager in my early twenties, some of my biggest influence influences were like Doc Hammer and Jackson Public of the Venture Brothers and Rob mm. McElhenney of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, and they have mm. they have very little to do with my own experiences, but they were such like individualist create or they had like such a unique vision that they stuck with and they expressed right. themselves so honestly and developed their own language and I loved it. And even just doing that I think is so valuable are being stubborn about no, I'm going to tell my story. I'm not going to do it mm -hmm. the way that you want to. I'm going to go to a different network and get a get a smaller budget but more freedom. I wish yeah. more people would do that. I me too. God. I can understand why people might not do that with like a film cuz it costs money to make those those are mm -hmm. expensive but what bewilders me is how a lot of people don't seem willing to do that with writing fiction like you don't need a budget to write fiction you need time which i mean not everybody has time but the barrier for entry is so low but what's being put out often is still so so generic and still so like fandomy where even if it's not called Marvel, it's like, okay, this is a Marvel story somehow. This is the same structure. <laughs> and it kind of breaks my heart <laughs> to see that that's so, so big and, and that there's such a reluctance to, to support like writers who have something really interesting or different to say. It's very depressing. <laughs> it is, um, partially because I am a writer, and I'm like, I'm good, read my shit. People <laughs> are like, no, we're going to complain about this book that sucks. We're going to talk more about Harry Potter. Cat, chill out. Uh, I know. When did the last Harry Potter book, like that proper Harry Potter book come out? At least 15 years ago. Yeah, it's like, move on. I mean, I get it's, it's also it's different if like, I've been a really big fan of some things. Mm -hmm. uh, especially certain like anime and manga I've gotten really into and I've in the past like I've written fan fiction and done fan art and stuff yeah. but it's people who act like that is the only way to do it or the only thing they can engage in or I think people who get feel kind of safe and comfortable and their little like Harry Potter cocoon and, and never want to leave it I don't think it's like mm -hmm. embarrassing or inappropriate that adults really like Harry Potter like I've been to Universal in Florida Harry Potter world is really cool it's really fun but to make that your whole life and to hinge your whole identity on it and to celebrate like Dumbledore's gay when <laughs> J.K. Rowling is a turf, like I don't, there's something yeah. missing there. Yeah. And, and to have that be such a big part of your life, but never decide, what if I try to, you know, to never have that inspire you to try to write your own thing? Mm-hmm. That I find that heartbreaking. Well, so I think what part of what we've been talking <laughs> around and what's happening is that somehow, uh, you know, a few years ago, all the big companies realized that, it, you know, as things get worse, as, ne as neoliberalism collapses, people are going to, you know, start trying wanting to find their own voice and tell their own stories. But what we can do is we can say that actually we're telling your own story. We are your voice because we have representation now. See, so these these same movies that we've been making this entire time now, now they're your story. So you don't have to tell your own story. You don't have to look uh, for 
or mm-hmm. uh, independent artists or outsiders. You don't have to go and you know watch a movie by a black director because hey, we're gonna have a black director <laughs> in air quotes uh, to make a movie for you, and that's <laughs> gonna and that's uh, all you need now. And what bothers me is just seeing too many people like fall for it or. I, I I don't know how to make people do this, but I feel like as a society, we've got to rethink the idea of what it means to be a part of culture. Like, I don't know, like maybe you've got a friend who's in a, in a garage band or something. Like we have this idea that if I don't get that big record contract, if I don't play a stadium, if I don't get a top hit, I'm not really a musician. It's like, no, it's still fucking fun to be in a band with your friends. You don't have to get that contract. You don't... You know, maybe you're a poet and all you can do is read your... Kitty, calm down. And all you can do is read your poetry at open mic nights, but you, I, that's worthwhile. That's worth something. That's a way that's to really cool. That's really cool. That's hard. I could yeah. never read... Like, I've done a lot of public performance, but the idea of reading poetry is terrifying to me. Or writing poetry is so vulnerable. I think it's really cool that people do that. It's not even like yeah. my art form I'm super into, but I really admire people who can get up alone and, and just sort of pour their soul out like that. And I wish yeah. more people would do it. And it's so much more rewarding, I find, than like you could be just just writing your own original thing and, and putting it out there and sharing it with people, even if you never get that official stamp of approval of here's your publication, here's your here's your contract. Like it it does something for you in a way that, say, being in a fandom doesn't. It's so much richer and and so much beautiful, more beautiful. And it's like publication or mass dissemination. It does that doesn't have to be the goal of storytelling. Like when I think about how people tell stories, tell ghost stories around a campfire, like nobody's doing that because a, a, a publishing company and agent is going to come up and tell me that was very spooky. Here is a million dollars. <laughs> Here is a bag with a big dollar sign on it. Like. No, that's not happening, and that's not the purpose of telling that story. You're just scaring the shit out of your friends, and that's wonderful. Like that's pure. That's beautiful, and and we need more of that. I think it's it's the corrupting influence of both capitalism, but also having such, especially all the like parasocial work that I've done, having mm-hmm. such a fame obsessed culture. Yeah, it's like if if someone's an actor, uh, like someone might consider them a failure if they only do like local theater productions or like have a web series but like right. actually i think being like a rich and famous actor sounds like a fucking nightmare it sounds and, like horrifying. the worst life and a lot of them end up dying of like drug overdoses or committing suicide or all this kind of stuff it's like there's just a, a completely backwards view of what success means in our culture and that it's like you can't be a successful writer unless you're fa- you're like Stephen King or something right which who famously never had any drug problems or personal problems <laughs> in his life either very healthy lifestyle yeah total, very normal person normal guy yeah like the idea of fame actually really horrifies me um i i didn't even realize i was consciously doing this but i i read someone who mentioned that oh yeah ours benedict i like her she's really like private online and i'm like yeah i guess i am but I think that's a good idea. Like when I see mm-hmm. interviews with famous musicians or actors or artists and an interviewer who just met them maybe an hour ago asks them or five minutes ago asks them, so what's it like living with bipolar disorder? Or like, mm-hmm. so is this inspired by that time you were raped? It's like, whoa, like fucking imagine living like that. You meet someone and in five minutes, you know, they put you in front of a camera and ask you about being raped for entertainment. Like, God, fuck. Nope. That's a lot. And I think so, I think it can be valuable to express that in your work. Like I talk like a lot of my family died when I was young and it was really awful. And I talk yeah. about that in a lot of my videos and I've gotten comments from people who say that the work that I've done like my hereditary review helped them understand their own trauma or their friends mm-hmm. trauma better. But there are other things in my life I would never talk about online, like basic yeah. facts of my life or of my experiences that are not anybody's business. Right. And there is so much pressure to use your own trauma for sympathy or for attention yeah. uh, in a way that it's just, it's like re-traumatizing and really unhealthy. And like you said, I, yeah. I've gotten to the point where I have been recognized in public Whoa. and it's super weird <laughs> as a very shy person. I got recognized at Halloween Horror Nights at Universal actually uh, by like a random guy who was like, are you the person who made those videos about parasocial relationships? And he was very nice. He wasn't weird, but yeah. it was, I was like with my family 
who I oh, never God. post pictures of online, who I don't talk about online. And I was like, what were we talking about when he walked up? It was just weird. Uh, and like I said, I cannot imagine being actually famous and dealing with that or, ha- or being like Robert Downey Jr. And like the whole world knows about your drug problems and whatever. Oh, God. It's just like, ugh, it's, it's weird. Yeah, that sounds kind of terrifying, actually, being recognized in public. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, I And it never happens at places I would expect it to happen. Um, it's happened a couple of times. It's super weird. But luckily, my whole online thing is like, leave me alone. <laughs> Mind your business. So people are very polite so far. <laughs> Good. But I like your work, and then they leave me alone. So Not like, hey, kids, I'm your friend. I'm your friend, kid person whose name I don't know. Give me money. I am your friend. Mm-hmm. Stranger? <laughs> yeah. False friends. I believe you made a video about that. <laughs> I did. That got taken down by the IP machine, speaking of the, the corporate entertainment um, oh, yeah. stranglehold. Universal Music Group manually claimed like a 20-second clip of a Kanye West song in a two-hour video. Someone wow. watched it. Claimed it, did not tell me what they took it down for. It took, like, I had to do three different counter notices. It was down for three months, and then someone who's a fan of mine who works for Google, like, internally messaged someone, and it was fixed within a day. Wow. It was just the worst thing. It's like talking about IP law and how it's, and it was like, what drove me nuts, too, it was obvious fair use, what they Mm. took it down for. And it was just such a nightmare, and it's like, I put all this work into making these, like, web documentaries and, and that they couldn't like, even tell you either. Just like, fine, I'll fucking take the clip out if you just, like, please just tell me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I had to keep emailing them and tweeting at them for, like, I don't even understand how it's possible for it to be taken down. I mean, it just took a couple days before they finally emailed me back. But it was, like, taken down for, you have to email this email address to find out. And I was like, what is this? This is not, and it was, like I said, it was just, like, a small clip of a Kanye West song that I never would have included if I knew it would uh, lead to just such a weird copyright nightmare right right or like you might not was it in the background of something else you were putting in or something like or was it like no it was it was 100 percent fair use i was like talking about it and like analyzing it that's what i was honestly kind of worried about when it got taken down i didn't know what it was it's like because i did there are some instances of clips that i've used that have a better fair use defense than others Mm. but this one was very black and white uh and like i said the second the day that, that that person emailed within the structure of Google, it was fixed within a day. So it, it was just, they just didn't get around to it for three months. So it's just like wow. strangling so much. And now with coronavirus, YouTube has just straight up said, we're probably gonna take down more stuff than deserves to be taken down because we're Ooh. understaffed now. It's like, okay, cool. Ooh, great. Like obviously I, I value the, the people who work for them and their health more than videos, but they're just straight up admitting. It's like when you go to the YouTube studio, it just says it at the top of the page. Like, we're going to be screwing this up for a couple months. And you just have to deal with it. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> cool. I'm glad we decided to have one platform for everything. This is yes. great. This is so good. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very healthy structure. Love it. <laughs> it's exhausting. I have switched a lot more to podcasting because YouTube as a platform is so not user-friendly. Yeah, and so ruthless. And the co- like, I learned too when I switched to doing struggle session, and I'm on an actual play podcast called Critical Bits as well. The re- like, I have never gotten, I don't think, any kind of negative or harassing comment off of struggle session or off Critical oh. Bits. Whereas the YouTube comment section, I've gotten like death threats and weird, angry messages and stuff. Oh yeah, um, yeah. That and like, you're a visible woman on on YouTube. That's, I'm sure that's great. Uh, it's a nightmare. Normal. <laughs> that's sort of off topic, but it's also it's like different fandoms or different fandom spaces mm. can get way more like angry. Like if you talk negatively about a Marvel movie or positively about a mm. Marvel movie, people get huh. it's like you're attacking their identity, and they get yeah. so mad. Whereas if I like negatively review, a, I don't know, like an obscure album that no one cares. <laughs> the eight guys who listen to it are indifferent. Yes. And they're not going to tell me to kill myself or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is another reason why listening to small stuff or, or promoting small stuff, reading small stuff is, is good. So I'd, I would urge people, if if you're just not up for writing, if you're not up for creating, consider kind of giving people a boost who are. Like, it, it, it's so hard as an independent creator, as a small creator, to sort of get your work out there, to get to get your name out there and just... If you can, you know, try and turn your friends on to 
the work of kind of smaller independent creatives, it does make a difference. It, it, it makes a bigger difference for that person than if you were deciding to talk about whatever the latest Harry Potter thing is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> J.K. Rowling doesn't need you, and she's a turf, so fuck her. <laughs> but, you know, your, your little zine editor, your little favorite little short story writer, or some low-budget horror movie that, that might have some janky special effects but has something really fresh and interesting to say, like, spread the word, man. <laughs> Yeah, or you're a podcast that um, is not a subservient to a Disney Marvel that still talks about, you know, film and film culture and TV shows like Struggle Session. The reason why I started the show is because it's the type of show I want to hear. I want to hear, you know, people with actual good politics analyzing mm. uh, movies, you know, in, in or, or film or books or in pop culture uh, in general comics, too. And there weren't really that many people doing it is just it's always so disappointing like again with the birth movies disney people like they talk a lot about representation but they never think about you know any kind of class element or economic element too and it's like that's a big chunk missing if you're trying to be like the wokest film critics in the world if you actually do not understand or care about class that's a big problem and so we we started to show in part you know to have something like that Mm. um out there for people to support and thankfully a lot of people have supported it's now you know a full-time thing for me um so you know i I really appreciate people who have decided to listen to my show instead of you know whatever i mean there's tons of other pop culture podcasts out there that uh they could listen to but they listen to us thankfully yeah, it is, it is, I think, good having something talking about mass media that's not just, like, fandom, which is just basically another form of advertising, yes. you know? Like, so much of the discourse is about consumer choices and not, like, okay, let's actually look at what, what we're putting in our brains. What is this really saying? And a lot of people aren't really used to the, seeing that in any kind of meaningful way, and they, they, they kind of get a little hostile or confused at first yes uh, a little a little bit a little little god i i unlike shan i have haven't quite gotten death threats i have been told to kill myself for you know this or that opinion about some popular movie that i swear to god the person who was mad about it probably has never watched a single frame of since uh they've been upset about it but it's just like when i said earlier about how you know these corporations have kind of started to say like he we can be your identity for you a lot of people are comforted by that and internalized as as shannon was mentioned earlier about how people you know view these parts of popular culture as part of themselves which is not necessarily an unnatural thing to do i think i think internalizing story and narrative is part of how we is part of how we form our identity what music we like what film we like what stories we like that is a part of who you are as a person but the problem is that when you sort of ignore all the other stuff behind those stories the corporation that's making it how they treat their workers how they treat their actors how they treat their directors is this you know thing you start you that was foundational to you as a seven-year-old is it the same thing now that's been made by a different company a different person or several different people now uh who are just you know hired guns uh trying to uh scrape out a living by putting out whatever crap that disney tells them to put out is it the same thing is it still healthy for it to be such a large part of your identity once you uh grow up and become you know Mm -hmm. the person you are is it still is it so important that you have to tell people uh that they should die if they don't uh like at man (laughs) 2 Yeah, it's it's a little intense, and it, a lot of it does kind of make me sad just to see this much focus and, and love for something that's very clearly made like, oh, let's make money. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. We need to make money. Superman makes money. Let's make another Superman. Like, okay, like, this is my soul now. Like, I will die for this. Like, fuck, dude. Oh. There, no, please don't do that. 
I don't know if y'all are familiar with Red Letter Media, but their Nerd Crew series is a very good, very, very uh, acerbic takedown of like Collider videos or people who just like are clearly on the Disney payroll or influenced by Disney. Uh, it's just yeah. like a, it's, it's them sitting around uh, surrounded by action figures making fun of consumerism. And it's very dark, like content Ooh. warning for people who have any kind of sensitivities about that sort of stuff. Red Letter Media is not the most sensitive about that kind of thing, but it's it, it, I, I, I cannot think of a better like vicious critique of like nerd consumerism than the nerd crew videos. There's a bit where it's like you can be buried in a Marvel branded coffin <laughs> and have new Marvel movies like um, via internet sent while you're in your grave or whatever, stuff like that. It's really oh. funny. They're really good. That sounds amazing. Oh God. Oh my gosh. So I think we've been talking about an hour, so we should probably uh, start winding down. Anything else you'd like to add before we go? Uh, no, I think I, I, think I, I, I rambled enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's mm-hmm. good. And once again, I mean, you you guys, I probably don't need to ask you this because um, I, I have thirteen. I have literally six Patreon subscribers. You have significantly more. But where can our eight listeners uh, find and support your work? <laughs> uh, well, you can find uh, both me and Shannon. Uh, uh, she's our film correspondent at patreon.com slash struggle session. We have tons and tons of episodes. We do about two bonus episodes a week for just $5 a month. Uh, and, we, and we cover, you know, popular culture with, you know, our brains turned on. And we are able to, you know, critique <laughs> uh, these things that we love. And if you uh, want more of that, please uh, check us out. You can find me on Twitter at Plenty of Alcoves. And if you look up Fake Friends Parasocial on YouTube, uh, you can find the those videos. I also, I've worked on the Scanline series with H. Bomber Guy. And I'm also on uh, Critical Bits, which is a teenage superhero, body horror, queer, anti-fascist, actual play podcast, which is at Critical mm-hmm. Bitcast. Yeah, that's another thing of like when people get mad about superhero shows not being woke enough it's like there's a lot out there including something mm. i'm on but yeah that's what i do i do and i usually do conventions around the southeast but that's not happening right now so understandably well thank you so much for coming on it was great talking to you too uh, thank you so much for having us yeah thank you yeah that was neat and it once the cat stops attacking my doorway okay um <laughs> And thank you, listeners, for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and support us. Subscribers get early access to our episodes, plus access to the Discord where you can chat about reading and suggest topics for us to talk about. Book club tier members get a monthly bonus episode in which we talk in-depth about a piece of fiction, like the works of Franz Kafka or 19th century Australian Gothic. And join us next time when we talk about villainy. Until then, keep writing good. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>